0: Listening to the Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing specifically today, my own writing, because we are continuing with this series on Demise of the Trinity, yes. The next chapter that we're reading is from Aroma Thorne's perspective, that was my tablet in the background, thank you very much Amazon. Oh, there it goes again. I don't know what's happening. So, Aromas chapter isn't very long. Not to say that it's short by any means, but it's not nearly as long as the next Veronica chapter, which I think is like 30 pages. And then there's Harley. So I think we'll get through these two chapters today. I hope you've been enjoying this, me reading and talking about my own writing, as always. But uh, the Veronica one will probably take its own episode And is this episode 4 or 3? I think it's 4, yeah, maybe 5. I can't keep up anymore. I'm too lazy to look. How are you doing this week? Well, I'm doing just dandy, you know? Nothing to complain about. Nothing that I want to talk about on the internet, at least. I talked about Aroma in the last episode because she's in Arthur's chapter, that's her introduction in the book. And we are going to start this without any context whatsoever. So, I realize today, I say, that I've never heard your voice before. Ken Price sits on the other side of bulletproof glass with his orange jumpsuit blending in with his pale skin. With black hair and brown eyes, his gaze often sours my stomach when I fail to see any emotion or regret in him. The night I arrested him, He went after that maniac who kidnapped me with a sword without a sign of strain. His expressionless face turned on us as we went to take him down, and I'm shocked that we got cuffs on him. You didn't speak during the trial, I say. When someone asks you a question, you look away as if you can't hear us. Originally, this was supposed to be a Clarice Hannibal Lecter sort of thing and Ken was going to get out, and Ken and Aroma were going to end up together. That is obviously not what happens in this book, but that's what originally happened when I wrote this chapter like two or three times before. Ken pleaded guilty, got a sentence of 20 years, and went to Wrightsville within a month. Since then, he's killed two guards and three inmates. The warden called me today to let me know they were putting him in isolation until further notice. I figured I'd try to reason with Ken or at least talk. I'd like to think seeing a pretty lady would give him some reason to speak. By the way, there is a Ken Price short story that I wrote what 2 years after this book came out that's it was originally in Toxic Literature. I don't know if it's in Angry Bluebird or not, but it's not a bad short story. Ken, I say. I get that you're a self-loathing little child on the inside and you're trying to prove your masculinity in this place, but I'm only here to talk. I, I, I want to hear anything you have to say. Smirking, the first time in front of me, Ken rests his chin on the counter and ruffles his hair before smoothing it back. As he taps his fingers against the glass, a guard yells at him to stop acting out. Looking back at the overweight man in khaki, Ken flips him off and turns to me. Here, he says. Now you've heard my voice. May I please go back? The warden said I could keep you as long as I want, I say. It all depends on your cooperation. You know, he leans back. You got me on the guys I killed in Birmingham and Atlanta. I even took the blame for the cop you found in Barrow County, which I didn't do. But you missed so much more, including my father. At this point, and some of you may not realize this, but in Price of the Trinity, when Ken believes he shoots his father and kills him, Charles survives because Charles is protected by his contract with Satan. So what ends up happening is Charles goes into hiding and he pops back up and the second part of this novel. If you again if you want more context on Charles that isn't in this book or in Price of the Trinity, there is a novella that takes place in the 80s that is in my novella collection staring at Nirvana and I did read it on the podcast. Admittedly, Barrow County and APD couldn't come to an agreement about the dead officer found on 316. We assumed it was Ken because he was the only one trying to kill people that night. His girlfriend, Lilith Walker, again not her last name, went back to Athens and we tried to subpoena her, but we still haven't heard anything. She probably left the state to get away from Ken. But I didn't know Ken took out Charles Price. He's been missing for almost a year now. And to, Oh my god. Until now, I wouldn't believe Ken had anything to do with his father's disappearance. I'm not worried about it, considering he'll probably never get out of here. Twenty years isn't enough, I say, but it'll keep you occupied for two decades. I won't be here that long, he shrugs. Oh, really? I ask. Are you Sean Connery all of a sudden? Sean Connery isn't bulletproof, Ken smiles. Neither are you. If I were any other officer, I say, I'm already in prison, he says. There's nothing you can do now. I groaned earlier because. Oh, God. She says that Charles has been missing for almost a year now, which timeline wise doesn't really match up with. Oh, my God. Um. Again, I, I had a moment in the last episode where I was like, is this a plot hole that I wasn't aware of? So, at no point in this book or in Price of the Trinity, because Price of the Trinity takes place entirely in the fall of 2010, um, and assumedly, I believe... This chapter would have to take place in either 2014 or 2015. Now, it does stand to reason that because of Satan's involvement with everything, protecting the people like Ken, even though Ken isn't aware, protecting him from the authorities up until a point, obviously. Um, Having Charles Price missing, no one acknowledges that, that he's gone, at the end of Price because it's all from Ken's perspective and then no one acknowledges that he's missing in this book until right now so it stands to reason that he wasn't reported missing until years after his disappearance does that make sense? (laughs) oh Jesus you know you can come up with your own headcanon or you can just say Patrick has a plot hole. I don't give a shit. I haven't heard any complaints about this. The other the complaints that I've heard have been minuscule things like, "Oh, he has a typo on page 6," which there's no typo on page 6. There are no page numbers. Before the ha 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 fake laugh I still don't know the maniac's name or why Ken attacked the Central Network network servers. We have no record of his employment, income, or tax information. He wouldn't talk until now. And I'd say he has little to lose unless he has loyalty to someone outside. I'd wager whoever paid him to take on Central Network wants him to stay quiet until they can arrange his release or escape. There's some dramatic irony or foreshadowing. Whichever, whichever you prefer, people. Before the night we took you in, I say. Did you know the man who aided in your arrest? The one who kidnapped Lilith and is likely responsible for her leaving Georgia? You've never heard of Arthur Lindsay, detective? That name brings an image of a reclusive veteran living in Alabama to mind. Arthur Lindsay was the equivalent of Sasquatch mixed with the boogeyman. A myth to scare stupid people. Don't wander too far into the woods in Alabama because there's someone fiercer than banjo-picking inbred hillbillies. Yet, I saw this man's invulnerability firsthand. Surely the mythical Arthur Lindsay didn't rise from his booze-distorted state to find Ken Price. From what I understood, he wasn't someone you bothered whether, you, whether or not you believed in his power. If someone was paying price to terrorize Central Network, maybe the angered CEO, Walter Grone hired Arthur in retaliation. And if Arthur couldn't kill Ken, he could keep him detained. That plot sounds far-reaching and idiotic, but that's how corporations work. Arthur Lindsay has nothing to do with you right now, I say. But he didn't come after you for free, did he? And risk his life? Ken looks the other way. He's probably a millionaire now. Weren't you? I ask. I still am. Ken scratches his neck. Do me a favor. Yeah? Check your phone for the time? Reaching into my jean pocket, I pull out my iPhone and press the power button only to find it unresponsive. When I click the action key, the screen lights up without any image. The room darkens and the guards walkie-talkie spew static behind Ken. Remain seated, the guard says. Jumping onto the counter and spinning around, Ken pulls the chair from the floor and beats the guard over the head. I wasn't allowed to carry in my firearm, but I'll fight that son of a bitch if he comes at me. Ken! I shout. What the hell? Get under the counter, he says. The building begins to shake and there's a loud crash followed by an explosion. My heart stops before beating faster and my hands can't steady enough to hold my phone, which is useless. Glass breaks and Ken busts through the other side to me. I have an appointment, detective, he says. But I want to advise you against investigating me any further. Especially stay away from Fonda Communications and Harley Freudland. You're not going to find anything about me there. He winks and waves goodbye as a hole forms in the ceiling and a helicopter blasts air and rubble throughout the air. And within ten seconds, Ken Price is gone. But the power doesn't return as the chopper disappears. Instead, I hear a crowd shouting and chanting. And when my brain tries to adjust to the situation, I realize it's the prisoners rioting. All right, so a helicopter shows up. There's an explosion, and Ken escapes through a hole in the ceiling, which, when I wrote it, sounded ridiculous. And I knew that, and the thing is, is that Ken is theatrical. He wants to... To be a villain at this point, and he wants to take out both Walter Grohn and Harley Freudlin at this point, but he's more focused on Walter. And if you read *Price of the Trinity*, you, you find that he resents Walter and Murray and his father because they tried to force him into this lifestyle that he never asked for and use him as a weapon. So he does in *Price of the Trinity*. Spoiler alert, he tries to kill Walter. And he is going to kill Murray until Lilith shows up and distracts him and diverts his attention to um, Harley Freudland, who is created kind of in response to Ken, but also because what's going on with Walter and Murray isn't working out the way that Satan hoped. There were chapters that I wrote from... Lucifer's perspective, but I cut all that out because I want him to be this ominous presence in the background. I don't want the reader to always know what's going through his head. I want to leave you guessing. I want you to theorize, well, why did he do this? Why did he do that? And why is it never acknowledged that there is a literal trinity of antichrist created in response to the trinity? These are questions that you need to Ask yourself and answer yourself as the reader. I'm near the front of the prison, and most of the inmates are either in cell blocks or in the cafeteria right now. As I glance around, walking through the hallway that led to the visitation area, I make it to the lobby, which is dark and deserted. When I look at my shaking hand, my veins pop through the skin as my heart no longer shows any discretion. Even my ears begin to beat along with them as if Huey Lewis and the news are about to jam out hard of rock and roll. There are no guards in the parking lot. The watchtowers look empty. Once I'm in my car, I pull out my Glock 22 and hold it to my chest as I look around. It's like everyone was abducted. Barring the sound of the riot, I feel as if the officers deserted me. So I start the engine and can't worry about... My next move because I want out of here. This is so unexpected and random that I question if this is reality. Ken staged a prison blackout and had a helicopter rescue him? I find myself laughing with relief mixed with bewilderment as I'm on my way back to the police headquarters. But Ken only dug himself into a deeper ditch... Whoever pays or controls him possesses not only great power and wealth, they're dangerous and beyond my reach as a police detective. The further I reach into the honeypot, the more it stings like a beehive. Yet, Ken mentioned Harley Freudland, the CEO of Fonda Communications, as if he was imparting me with the next clue. I could see Walter Grown having the money for helicopters, hitmen, and audacious prison attacks. Freudland can't have that kind of bank. Fonda hasn't been a relevant company in almost two decades. Sure, I used Fonda for my dial-up connection when the sound of the phone line screeching was akin to an exorcism, and Central Network saved us with that DSL. Ken might have told me point-blank that Freudland paid him for the Central Network fiasco, but surely Freudland isn't that stupid. Is he hoping for dial-up to make a comeback? The entire reason Fonda existed in public consciousness was their aggressive ad campaigning and free trial discs that now melt in landfills. Wouldn't that sort of marketing help them as a company now, or is Freudland simply not as suitable a replacement for the original CEO? So, I don't know if I've mentioned this so far in our reading, but Fonda is obviously a reference to AOL, uh, Fonda Communications being named after Jane Fonda, who was married to Ted Turner, who was the owner or major investor of America Online. As I ponder all the possibilities, I can't follow this logic, but Ken gave me a direct answer. So, maybe I need a direct approach. If Freudlin employed Ken... Wouldn't he also be responsible for the blackout and helicopter bursting through the roof? Why would Ken lead me to him? I'm in awe of the stupidity of it all. For months, I thought Ken and a secret organization worked together to bring down Central Network again to a terrorist group taking on the government. Now I wonder if some American rich guys got together to live out some strange fantasy. Not everyone who leads this country is smart. If you have enough money, people will listen and will do what you say. But I must be just as stupid to pull into Fonda Communications' parking garage. What do I hope to gather after watching Ken Price fly out of prison and almost becoming a victim thanks to his insanity? If any one of those inmates spotted me, I could have been held hostage, raped, or injured. Now I'm investigating an unofficial prospect in a closed case. And what do I hope to accomplish? Once I'm in the building, am I going to walk up to some secretary at a desk, interrupt his or her phone call, and announce that I'm a detective and want to speak with the CEO of Fonda Communications? Just a a little note here. So, this was written... Over the course, I, I've said this a million times. And you're probably tired of fucking hearing it, but I wrote this in the 2010s. It was published in 2020, and the whole "they there" thing wasn't as prevalent. And I probably wrote this chapter in 2018. I don't know, but his or her was a really common um, phrase. It still is, but. I'm just noting in my head that Aroma could have said interrupt their phone call instead of his or her, but at the same time, this is taking place in the early 2010s. So again, you know, context. As I consider going home instead, there's a knock at my window. A large bearded Asian man in a suit with a security name tag looks at me expectantly. Miss Thorne, he inquires. Oh. So if this guy knows my name and expected me, then Freudlin either orchestrated Ken's escape or Price phoned ahead to warn him. Either way, I'd be better off collapsing on my couch and waiting for my commanding officer to ask what the fuck happened at the goddamn prison when I visited Ken Price while off duty. By the way, what's the answer to that question? Did I even ask a question? How did the security guard know that it was a roma thorn. Well, we haven't quite met Harley yet. But if you've read this book before, and you've listened to me talk at all during this podcast, you know that Freudlin is one of the Antichrist. And he unknowingly works for Lucifer. The thing about Harley is that Harley believes that he's working for God. And his plan with... Fonda Communications is for the benefit of God and to remove evil from the world, which is why he ends up, spoiler alert, killing Walter Groan. Will you come with me, he asked if Mr. Fordland invites you to interview him. The security guard remains on the elevator as I enter an office more akin to Hugh Hefner's living room. With... Shaded windows ornate rugs over a dark hardwood floor, a fireplace providing some light, and a set of leather sofas around a coffee table. I'm not sure if Freudland lives in what Teddy Fonda once called his workspace. I expect Freudland to sit at a desk with a smoking jacket as a cigar illuminates in his lips. Instead, I'm alone. There's no desk or even a computer. Sitting near the fireplace, I wonder who would want one burning in Atlanta during August. One may assume Freudlin would want to hurt me for what I saw, but he might want to seduce me in this swank pad. Oh, foreshadowing. Oh, God, I have to read that scene. It's, It's just now hitting me. All right, so we have to get into the trigger warning for this. And I'm sorry that I waited this long. Okay, so, and I understand. You know, years ago we used to laugh at trigger warnings, but, you know, you can't necessarily help what makes you think of your trauma. Hence, trigger warning. So, in this chapter, there is a rape scene. I want to make perfectly clear that this is in no sense glorifying rape Harley Freudland is a bad guy and he's not going to, he's, he's going to get away with it in the moment, but it has relevance to the rest of the novel. Okay. Okay. It's also a way for you as the audience to realize, oh, he's a piece of shit. Okay. Oh God. Detective, I turn to see a young man, maybe 28, donning a Brooks Brothers white shirt with a red Zanzara tie and black suspenders upholding Ralph Lauren trousers. His combed hair, glazed with mousse and moisturized skin, reflect the nearby flames as black irises reveal a man so perfectly groomed he's unremarkable without a soul on the other side. Smiling with his hand out for me to shake, he introduces himself as Harley Freudland, CEO of Fonda Communications. Meeting you, he sits across from me, is like meeting my favorite actor. I kept seeing you on the news when Ken was on trial. Central Network kept dropping your name and showing your interviews with the press. To my dismay, I couldn't turn off the TV when you were on. Central is my competitor, yet they had me hooked. They're also the reason Ken went to prison, I say. Oh no, Freudland laughs. There's another hero we have to thank for that. Arthur Lindsay. Freudland's charm inverts as his mouth relaxes from its strained grin, and eyes grow tighter on me. Opening a folder that sits on the coffee table, he displays an expanded photo of Lindsay while he was enlisted in the military in the 80s. The press never mentioned his name, Freudlin says. The officer he, he murdered in Barrow County wasn't even pinned on him. Ken got charged with... That, didn't he? Well, I guess his heroism outweighs his criminal activity. And what do you make of someone who orchestrates terrorist attacks, I ask. Two private properties with several casualties and now a prison with at least one dead officer. You're the detective, Freudland remarks. You're the one who's supposed to be lawfully good. So you admit to hiring Ken Price to murder and destroy property? Walking around to the beverage car behind his sofa, Freudlin shakes his head as if someone told some elaborate joke while pouring a drink. Holding up a bottle to offer me some, I shake my head in refusal because I'm not expecting anything but a confession from this ass. What are my motives, detective? he asks. Since you've figured me out. I'm not sure, I say, because you've wasted money buying an irrelevant brand. Crossing his legs, holding his brandy glass with both hands, Freudland looks at me as if he's human for the first time. His eyes water and he closes them. Freudland chugs the alcohol and sets the the icy cup between us. I think he's a good actor taking the time to fake emotions as if a camera sits behind my head and playing the victim without denying accusations. Miss Thorne, he says. You'll choke on those words a year from now. I am rebuilding this brand and offering the world a public service. Do you understand the concept of satellite radio You can drive anywhere and still have crystal-clear reception. Of course, the terrestrial radio will always win over a subscription service. It's free. But what if you pulled out your phone right now and didn't have to worry about losing bars or connecting to Wi-Fi? Your computer at home, at work, wouldn't be connected to an Ethernet cable or require a special passcode. And not only that, but what if the internet was faster? No more waiting for pages, downloads, and videos of kittens. It's all instantaneous. It's all free. When I originally wrote the concept for how the Antichrist helps destroy society, it was centered around Walter Grown and a milk company called Grown Milk. And it was inspired by Mayfield Milk and when I was a senior in high school, uh the original founder and or I think the original founder, I don't know, the guy who used to be on the Mayfield milk commercials came to my high school and he was really, really nice to everyone. He signed their milk cartons, but I went to go take my tray to um uh, the dishwashing room or whatever and then I turned around and he had walked into the lunchroom and he didn't smile at me he looked at me for a moment and then he turned around and left the lunchroom again and I think that that created some sort of resentment in me that inspired me to write a character that was a evil milkman but It got, you know, switched to the internet around what 2014 or so when I was writing this. So, um, this was before I knew anything about Elon Musk. I didn't even hear about Elon Musk until I think after I was married. So, uh, the thing about Elon Musk is that, you know, I've joked about him being the Antichrist like Harley Freudlin. Um, I didn't know about the satellite internet thing from him and of course um, this is a concept that was reused by other authors pretty recently um, I don't know if I'm the first to do it but I worked on it for a long time so I don't get really give a shit but essentially the plan is to get everyone hooked on the internet for free make everything in you know from the power companies to government offices dependent on the the cars, every vehicle for the most part, dependent on Wi-Fi, and then take it away. Anyway. I admit my mind tries to grasp onto this idea rather than Freudlin as a suspect, because if it's true, he's a genius. Our lives are growing dependent on this technology, and Central Network was the best, but even they couldn't provide flawless service. They were simply more convenient than Fonda. Yet this man's claims, contrasted to his actions, reveal an Ozymandias, Watchman reference, he's willing to end lives and cause destruction for this plan that will benefit society, but that depends on if he's successful, and I want to end his violent campaign. So you see, Froiland says, you don't affect me. The police are irrelevant to someone like me. I'm too rich, powerful, and crazy. I'm someone willing to hire Ken Price to kill people, send a helicopter to attack a prison, and put a satellite in the sky so everyone can have free internet. I'm not making any money from this. Of all the fucked up things you just said, I say, I have a hard time believing you're doing this for free. It's not free, sweetie. I'm paying for everything. It's free for you and everyone else. But if you mean I must be turning a profit, you're wrong. I'm not here to make money. As you can see, I'm not a greedy person. Wealthy? Yes. Yet, I'm trying to save mankind by taking down the very company that wants to brainwash us all and turn us on one another. Walter has a monopoly on the internet. He owns the largest media outlet in the world. And how often can you leave the house without seeing or hearing about Central Network? Most conspiracy theorists are lunatics living with their parents while watching online documentaries about aliens on their desktop computers. Okay, uh, that just reminded me. I don't know if I (laughs) talked about it previously. That line is a dig at someone who is now dead I'll read it again. Most conspiracy theorists are lunatics living with their parents while watching online documentaries about aliens on their desktop computers. I knew this man who helped break up a 20-year marriage. Uh, He was my ex-girlfriend's mother's boyfriend. Follow that train of logic. And I just recently found out, just because I was curious, whatever happened to Carrie... I looked him up on Facebook, and it turns out that he is dead. He died last year. And, you know, he tried to kill himself around 2011. That didn't work out. And then he, at some point when he moved back to California or wherever he was, uh, got third-degree burns all over his body. I don't know how he did that, but he did. And, um, he was building this kind of online community, a cult to himself on Facebook of people who just loved him, but they didn't know. And I don't want to speak disparagingly of the dead. I only knew him for a few years, but he was a bastard to me. He was, he was a piece of shit because he helped break up 20 year marriage. He was part of this traumatic event in my girlfriend's life. And he would go from trying to be nice to being a real dipshit. So it was like he had two different personalities. And hmm, it's interesting that I put that line in here. Because he was a conspiracy theorist and he did watch shitty documentaries on YouTube. And he made some as well. This Freudland guy happens to own a company. If he didn't have the money and he still hasn't told me where he got it, he'd be living with his mom and portraying Walter Grone as Hitler's reincarnate. Maybe the reasoning behind all of this is purely insanity? I'm just not connecting Ken into this. He didn't come off as a lunatic. Clearly... Rice is a psychopath because he's not remorseful about his actions, and the footage of him murdering a guard exhibits an inhuman lack of emotion. However, I don't see him going in for Freudland's sick fantasy, despite any monetary compensation. (laughs) Excuse me. Ken could kill for anyone for millions, yet he chose Freudland. You're so curious about my motives, Freudlin says, that you haven't questioned how I knew you'd be here. Did you tell Ken to throw me that hint, I ask. I'm a little more perceptive than you realize. Then that begs the question, he says. Did I plan Ken's escape around your appointment with him, or did I plan you meeting me as catalyst to his escape. I don't think you're that smart, I say, or that obsessed with me. Yet you're here, he smiles. Want to hear a riddle? I'm through. As I get up to leave, Freudlin kicks the coffee table and I feel the edge ram into my shins. Pulling my firearm, I'm ready for an excuse to shoot this asshole. He wastes my time and then assaults me. What swings, falls, and slices with no remorse? I'm leaving, I say, if you try... The flames from the fireplace surge toward me, and when I duck to avoid being burned, Freudlin pins me to the floor, causing my gun to slide across the floor. Floor in the same sentence, Patrick, the brilliant writing... You know, I'm not the only author who's self-conscious about this. I've heard David Zadaris say that when he's reading things out loud, things that he's published, mind you, that he says, oh, I use the same word in the same paragraph. But then I'll read Bukowski or Percival Everett, and they'll use the same word in the same sentence. And I'm like, okay, it doesn't really matter. His eyes burn as if his brain is an inferno. And I find myself stuck in a reality Or I'd rather be in a nightmare. A guillotine, he says. Because that's what happens to police who don't reach for what's under the table. The people like me who control your colleagues don't believe in the cop with a heart of gold. You're all corruptible. You want to buy me off? I ask. I already own your superiors. Freudland's teeth shine with the flames. I don't have to give you anything. They'll put you on the chopping block if you ever say my name. Ants crawl through my nerves as my arms no longer struggle and fall to the carpet. What the fuck is going on? When I hear Freudland's zipper open, I want to scream Fire yet my vocal cords don't vibrate when I open my mouth. Is it the helplessness or the CEO of Verizon Corporation about to rate me that frightens me the most? Um. Alright, we're going to get into this. So, buckle up, baby. I expect him to break open my vagina walls and hump until he comes, but when he breathes on my neck, laughing, Freudland wants to prove his dominance. Unbuttoning my shirt. Harley rubs his pinkies over my nipples. Their hardening coinciding with my growing nausea. And when my pants come off, he flips me over, my face burning through the numbness on the hardwood, pulling me onto his lap on the sofa a mirror across the room reveals my limp nude corpse as a foreign concept to me I don't know the woman with red curls bright like the flames and Freudlin's glimmer she begins to move as I sit still yet I feel what she's doing as Harley's penis pushes inside of me I'm watching myself fuck this creep as if I'm in control yet I'm victim to some unknown spell that paralyzes me. She groans in a ghostly silence with Freudlin's breathing and fire crackling, tingling in my ears. But a rush begins in my pelvis, and my eyes close as a wave forcefully brushes against my spine. By the time I realize it's me orgasming, I no longer see the false image in the mirror, but a darkness as if there's no reflection. All right, let's break this down a little bit. Did I read this before? I feel like I did. I think I read Aroma's chapter on the podcast before. I don't remember. Okay, so here's the thing. This is not about sex, obviously. It's rape. He's doing this to exert dominance, power... He's not getting off on actually having sex with her. He's showing her the extent of his power. He can take away her autonomy and force her to orgasm during a rape. So, Back in 2013, I think, I was in a William Blake uh, course in college and... For the first time ever, I heard a woman say that women are able have the... I want to phrase this correctly. That women can orgasm during rape. It doesn't nullify the fact that it's a rape, basically. So, you can be forced to orgasm against your will. And that kind of makes it all the more disgusting. So, no... This is not me as the author or Aroma as the person who's having her freedom taken away from her in this moment giving him a pass for raping her. Absolutely not. No one is condoning this action. Harley is terrible. He is an evil man. (sighs) But as I said, there is something that results from this. Um, namely Jason Thorne, her son. Anyway. Wrapping his hand around my neck, Harley smiles at me in the reflection, then pushes me to the floor. I wish I could savor your trauma, Harley says. The memory of me making you come. Making you enjoy fucking me. When I reach for my pants and pull out my gun, Freudlin walks up to me, and forces the barrel to his chest. Sweat and our fluids dripping give off an odor that permeates between us. When you saunter out of that cold shower, he whispers, and sob in your pillow, you're not going to be upset about this. I'm not a human capable of being caged. I want to upchuck and dig my own grave, but I'm in such a rush to leave and get back home, I don't remember riding the elevator back to my car. Within 20 minutes, I'm leaning over a lukewarm glass of Crown Royal, with my tears running alongside my mascara. Freudlin was right, because he's a mountain and I'm a mole. No matter how many holes I dig, he'll stand against anyone's pressure. That is a line, if I've ever read one, and I don't think I write like that anymore, which, I don't know, it may be a, a good thing, it may be a bad thing. I think that's a good line. In an hour's time, I experienced a side of this world no other human should dare to glimpse upon. And I'd trade my life to forget it. I don't know how to proceed when I can't impede Freudland or Price. Surely, if I tried, one of them would kill me. Yet, I haven't considered Central Network's perspective. I am thinking about this chapter from Harley's perspective that I'm about to read and how this all kind of comes together. And, you know, it leads up to Veronica's chapter, Ken's chapter, and then Birch. And it seems to be really well coordinated, but I'm going to tell you as the author that I wrote all this shit out of order. The only part of this book that I wrote in order is the second half of the novel. So if you're thinking that I'm some sort of, no one has ever said this to me, by the way, no one has ever called me a genius, but I'm being mildly facetious here. If you think that I'm some sort of genius for being able to put all this together, just know that it was written over the course of a decade and out of order, and it just happens to work. Some people would say it doesn't work, but those people can go fuck themselves. The chopper, I ask. Down, Benedict says. Price? presumed dead. Benedict Thompson, head of R&D for Fonda, nods his head and leaves my office. He's aware there was a plan involving Price's prison escape and an attack on the main central network service in Atlanta, though he assumes, along with the police and public, that Ken Price died in a helicopter crash. He's unaware that it wasn't an accident, though. Okay, one thing about what we're seeing here is that we already knew that Harley was responsible for this. Um, but Benedict was mentioned in Arthur's chapter because he and Arthur are friends, but Arthur is unaware that Benedict works for Fonda now. And he will show back up a little later to kidnap Arthur to help imprison him. And he also shows up in a flashback chapter from Arthur's perspective. The people need to believe Price was a crazed terrorist rather than a hired gun. I don't want them doubting the future of Fonda so much as Central Network. Our society runs on the internet, and if Central Network fails to provide them the best service, then they'll wonder who will. They're not going to have a choice anyway. We're ready to launch the satellite tomorrow morning, I say. And the announcement? Benedict asked. Without service from Central Network, I say, people's Wi-Fi will automatically connect to our system. I cannot compete with Central Network as a media corporation. They control television news, so I can't run an ad for Fonda Communications or expect an announcement about the new free Wi-Fi satellite system I'm launching, I don't want people to slowly switch from Central to Fonda because it's going to happen overnight. I'm going home for the evening, I say. I'll see you tomorrow, Benedict. How many men claim God as their sole creator? Even Jesus had a mother, but not Adam. God brought mankind to this universe through a single person's creation. All humans descend from the same two people, except for the select few who exist outside of natural birth. Lucifer made Walter groan. God made Harley Freudlin to stop the Antichrist. Yet my life's mission is not complete with Groan's death. Otherwise, he'd already be dead. Groan started a media company to brainwash the world, And his descendants will carry on as a dynasty to end mankind. All those who die by Groan's hand will enter hell. That's why I bought Fonda and designed the satellite Wi-Fi system. If Groan loses his business, he's powerless. Yet I often fantasize about the day he'll succumb to God's reckoning at my hand. Walter Groan already fears me, which is why I hired Ken Price. He'll know I have the money to buy anyone off. If I took down all of his servers myself, not only would I risk my reputation in society, Grone wouldn't have the same doubts. He'll know I am God's answer to Lucifer's plan. And I don't want that until he's dying before me. At the top of my driveway, I see a small reflection from the inside of my house, probably from a cell phone screen. On the left corner of my house, where the kitchen sits, I have large windows that extend from the roof to the patio. And the living room has two French doors under a decorative opening, so there's no need for artificial lighting until dusk. In the twilight, I make out a man's silhouette as I park, though he doesn't want me to see him just yet. Either he's not smart, or he's not worried about his life. I'm certainly not afraid of death. When I go through the front door and turn on the lights, I see why this man isn't fearful of anything. It's Ken Price. I hope that phone isn't registered in your name, I say. I'm using your Wi-Fi to check my emails and messages, Ken says. So if anyone traces me, it'll lead to you. From his dry tone, I figure he's mad about something, though I can't gather what... I helped him escape prison and paid him a lot of money to pull off that helicopter crash. No one knows he's alive but me. Yet I'm not surprised Ken isn't satisfied because that's what drives him. a thirst for more sin. And sin pushes us through anger. No one made a godly decision through gritted teeth. Then we're both safe, I say. I know you believe that. Ken pulls out a 9mm. But I found out my world's still in pieces when I got out. His girlfriend, Lilith, left for North Carolina and the police seized his assets. But it's not like his money is in a bank account. He can go find his whore and buy new things. Maybe he wants to prove that he's the stronger man. And he is. However, I wouldn't let him touch that trigger. Ken looks down at the pile of steel shavings that once sat in his hand, and he finally gets the sense that I'm not a typical greedy CEO. God granted me powers beyond Ken's invulnerability, and that's why he'll never have a weapon stealth enough to take me down. Whatever you're fuming about, I say, can be fixed. You're a wealthy man, so I don't get it. So why should I let the one man who knows I'm alive, Ken says, and orchestrate this plan live? What do I gain from that? You're an irrational, arrogant brat, I say. You came here to intimidate or murder me, but that your, your reason isn't logical. Right, Ken says, but I never worked for you because I like you, Harley. I did it for the money. And now, you've buried me. Why shouldn't I at least make sure it's deep enough? So if Ken worked at Walmart and rose to be the branch manager, would he shoot the CEO when he retired? The money isn't his issue then. I gave Ken an exit plan, when he really just wanted to be the ringleader instead of a jester. When Detective Thorne played... The footage of Ken attacking that security guard. He felt pride because he didn't have to wear a mask. Because no one can kill him. Arthur. Whoa. Not Arthur. Ken thinks he's unstoppable and therefore wants to push this world's limitations. Why did I say Arthur? I need something to drink. I'm drinking out of my tall, big Yeti today. Um, Just sparkling water. Um, a mixture of white grape and mandarin orange, like a Sicilian splash from Olive Garden, because I'm a child. Where the fuck was I? Um, tell me what you want, Ken, I say. You told me you worked for God, Ken says. I wanted to take down Grown with you because he served Satan. Do you know why I kill people? What inspired me to lash out? my father. He sold his soul to Satan. I'm still going to stop groan, I say. Yeah, Ken says, but we're not, you mean. I just don't have further use for you, I say. Walking past me to leave, Ken finally understands his role. He's not going to be more than a hitman and he's fulfilled his duty to me. Whatever he does from this point is for him to decide. When I shut the door, I can feel his presence. The Lord stands before me, with his eyes shut, hands out for me to hold. My skin scrapes against his palms as sandpaper with a newborn, yet he's intact, as if he doesn't feel how coarse I am in contrast to him. Each time he graces me, I feel my love for the Lord crawl through my being and eject from my soul. The man who leaves does not know how to be left behind. He's foolish, Dominie, I say. It's time to set the Antichrist demise, he says, before Ken Price decides to. And I'm alone. He leaves as the Lord wishes. Finally, I live the fantasy. When I'm hovering over Groan's corpse, I want to inhale, and sip his sangui like a crimson merlot. A major step in saving mankind from his satanic ruthlessness. My power allows me to bypass. The tedious planning of murder materializing in Groan's living room, I open my eyes to to the night seeping through the windows to my right. On my left is a portrait of Walter as a young businessman, though I know that's a lie. What a testament to futility and sin. I sense him lying back in his easy chair with legs propped up on a leather stool. The Alcohol he indulges in tingles in the glass next to him as bronze whiskey mixes with melting ice. A muted TV plays the news about Ken Price's disappearance in the helicopter which took out the main central network servers in Atlanta. He drinks to briefly relieve his failure in Lucifer's gaze. You think you're on the winning team, he says without looking back. But no matter how you strike me out, the game's going to end for both of us. The Antichrist rises, wiping the glass's condensation on his pants leg. Though Lucifer made an imperfect specimen, the hell bitch made Walter convincing as a slob. That's why God always wins. I'm not trying to blend. My name is Harley Freudland, a farcical title that makes me sound like an off-brand Bond villain. Walter sounds as American as apple pie left on a windowsill for maggots to breed in. God never loses, I say. Satan never wins. Think about that. Walter reaches over for a bottle on his nightstand. The Almighty may never lose, but he's not trying to win. I'm here to ruin your villainy, Walter, I say. Not discuss philosophy? Walter chuckles, removing his glasses and draining the whiskey before meeting me beside the bed. This is a little kinky. And when I see his wrinkles and yellowing eyes, I think lesser of him. He doesn't need me to kill him to fail, but I don't need Central Network stagnating in this moment. The Lord wants me to break the scale under my weight, and groan is a burden on gravity's pool. If Walter is the Antichrist, then why doesn't he fight me? Surely Lucifer endowed him with power. He looks like an aging relic from 80s Reagan America, and he's accepting his fate as if it's time. The way he spoke to me before I said a word was as if he knew I was already coming. Maybe he wants me to think he's defenseless to show mercy. But there's no forgiveness for continuing Lucifer's war against God. My hands press against his face, and I could end him in so many ways. The most satisfying would be to melt his skin and watch the blood and brains drain from his skull, but he wouldn't suffer as much. When I'm gone, Walter says, you'll be no less a sinner than me just because you killed an antichrist doesn't mean you're not one too those words force me to squeeze my hands together and walter groan's head collapses into pulp and his remains stain my palms when he hits the ground i didn't mean to kill him like that without lingering in his mortal grief but the rage within me forced my hands to silent that possessed goat of a man. I'm not a sinner in his eyes, I say, because I'm the Lord's Antichrist. Next week we'll get into Veronica and Ken. They have chapters after this. Um, It's interesting to hear Harley acknowledge that he is some sort of Antichrist, but um, one that serves the Lord that he is unaware is actually Satan. As I'm reading this, it's a little sad for me because, you know, despite the fact that Ken is a psychopath, I, I loved writing him as a character. Obviously, I, I gave him his own novel, but I'm just seeing where it's leading to him and where he ends up and everything. And then I did write that recent novella, Ken Price 2015, but doesn't really have any bearing on this. It's just kind of a way to acknowledge his death and how significant it was because it's not something that happens in this book. you know When Ken dies, it's over for him. and there, there's very little contemplation on anyone's part about it, um, which isn't unfortunate in the context of the novel, but uh, you know for him to go through everything that he does in price, it, it's kind of a, a breaking bad kind of death, you know, walk up behind someone and just break their neck and, oh, they were there for the last four seasons. Now they're not, but gosh, also Veronica, I know it's about to happen to Veronica, but Veronica is only in this book for a little while. And then we have the introduction of Birch through very unfortunate circumstances and when I wrote Birch, I didn't know he would be as big as he was in the context of these novels. I didn't know that I'd write a novel entire from, entirely from his perspective. I didn't know that I'd write a book called Surviving New America with him in it as well. Um, you know, I didn't anticipate any of that when I created Birch. So uh, Ken, on the other hand. He was supposed to be a big part of this. And he is, for sure. I mean, he's mentioned on the back cover. I was reading the back cover earlier. Mankind is near self-destruction and Lucifer wants to start the domino effect. But three invincible humans might stop him if they just get over themselves. Uh, Demise of the Trinity is a satirical urban fantasy fiction novel about the end of the world told from multiple perspectives. This is all marketing bullshit. Uh, I don't think it... You know, I, I did come up with it, but I came up with it for the sake of attracting readers, which it did. I wouldn't classify this as urban fantasy, uh, and I don't think it's satire. Uh, parts of it are, you know, but on the whole, I wouldn't say that the, the novel itself is satirical. Um, but it's easier to say that uh, than postmodern to people. And now the, the term satire is being used by um, people on TikTok and Instagram uh, when they're posting their scantily clad videos and whatnot and stuff. They say, satire. No, that's not what satire is, sweetie. Anyway, are we done here? Are you done with me? I'm done with you. Okay, it's been great. I'll see you next week. This has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. Happy reading, happy writing. Go Fly kite.